Well, I hope your trip to the heavenlies was a great encouragement to you. You know, I love Colossians 3 that says, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Is that incredible? Oh, ladies, that's what we need to be doing every minute of every day, setting our minds on things above. So I hope that was helpful for you to do and learn how to do that. So now as we come back down to earth from our trip into the invisible world, into the world of heaven, We're going to take a closer look at the glory of God by asking two questions. How can the glory of God shine out of me? And how can I see the glory of God all around me? And the answer to both of these questions are exactly the same. And we're going to look and get some instruction from the word as to how to do this. The glory of God should be the most important thing to us, but I fear that that's not always the case for us. So I pray that this will help us all invest in that which is eternal. Because we all want to get to heaven and look at Jesus and we want to hear, well done, don't we? So I hope you enjoy this and have a wonderful journey as we learn how to let the light of Christ shine out of us and how we can see his glory all around us. Yes, please stand with me and we'll sing together to our great God who is on his throne. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journey. Run his kingdom, stretch from shore to shore till sun shall rise and set no more. Blessings abound where'er he reigns, the prisoner leaps to lose his chain. We find eternal rest, and all the sons of want are blessed. To our King be highest praise, rising through eternal praise.
shall reign. Let every creature rise and bring blessing and honor to our King. Angels descend with songs again. Lost in his love And 
Now, we've just been to heaven, so that's why we had to bring the strings. I'm sorry. They're going to be there playing and playing and playing. Was that beautiful? That was so lovely. Thank you so much. They'll be back. (laughs) No, that was beautiful. As I said, you know, we've been to heaven, and I was looking at this second little talk, and I said to my husband, I said, this is really like, oh, why, why do I feel like this is really terrible? He goes, because you've been in the clouds and you're having to bring them back from the clouds to earth to deal with. Now, how do you do this? <laughs> so that's it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I can't leave you in the clouds. But we learn that Jesus will judge the motives of our hearts. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us how to do that. Whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. And that's how we deal with our motives, the motives of our hearts. We do everything to the glory of God. You wash the dishes to the glory of God. You change the diapers. You drive the kids to school. Whatever you do, that's how you worship in the middle of the muddle. So we're going to take a look at a tiny speck of the glory of God. So do you know that your brain weighs about three pounds? Give or take. Do you know... (laughs) that we use about one-tenth of one percent of our brains. Yeah. Do you know that we lose 21,000 brain cells a day that cannot be regenerated, which is probably why the saran wrap ended up in the refrigerator, but I don't want to talk about that. And here's a mind blower. Did you know that you don't even think with your brain? What? The gray matter that they call brain, when you die, that's going down in the dirt with you. We actually process all of our thinking in our souls. Ephesians 4.23 actually talks about being renewed in the spirit of your minds. Everyone has a perfect soul, no matter how damaged the gray matter is, whether by Alzheimer's, whether by drug or alcohol abuse, whether by brain damage from birth, whatever the case, God has given, this is stunning, each person a perfect soul who can receive the eternal word of God and it goes right past everything that's damaged in your gray matter. And that's Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword to divide just like bone from a marrow. Huh? Pretty amazing. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the soul. It goes beyond the gray matter. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give an account. And that's what we've just been through. The word of God is supernaturally charged. So we sit here going, (laughs) How can the finite ever grasp the infinite? How can we who are so trapped in time grasp the eternal? 
We're going to borrow some scholarly words to help us on our little journey into the glory of God. One of them is intrinsic glory. And that's basically who and what God is. All of his attributes that sum up the glory of God, intrinsic glory. That's the inexhaustible sum of everything that he is. The glory of God refers to his manifested presence. And one of the ways he physically manifests himself is in light. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Habakkuk 3.3 says, His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight, and he has rays flashing from his hands. God whispers his glory in his creation. God speaks in full voice in his word, and God shouts his glory in his son. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we can see the glory of the invisible God in the face of Christ. The glory of the invisible God shines fully in the person of Jesus Christ, shouting his glory in his son, intrinsic glory. That's the fancy word. The other scholarly word is ascribe glory. That's how we honor him by acknowledging who he is and what he can do. First Chronicles 16, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Now when we ascribe glory, do his name, and use words like almighty and holy God, we're not just talking about something wonderful and awesome, but we're actually talking about something dangerous. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when the Lord came down and visited Mount Sinai, he had to get the people ready to come in contact with even a little tiny bit of his glory. And he did so by setting up boundaries. Exodus 19, 12. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up on that mountain or even touch the border. Because whoever touches the mountain will surely die. God imposed the death penalty on anyone who violated the boundary set up by the awesome, holy, almighty God. To come in contact with a tiny portion of God's glory is shocking to our finite beings. And the definition of shocking, extremely startling, terrifying, a violent encounter. And that is an accurate description of what happened to the men in the Bible that came in contact with even a little bit of God's glory. It is shocking to finite, pitiful, sinful creatures. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that's why Jesus came to make a way back to God so we can stand before this holy God, sins forgiven, atonement made, hidden with Christ in the Godhead. Now, I'm going to read to you Matthew 17, but before I read to you Matthew 17, and that's about the Mount of Transfiguration, I want to challenge you to expand your grasp on just how vast the universe is that God created and how truly small we are and even how minuscule our planet Earth is. Heaven is my throne and Earth is my footstool. So, (laughs) the Hubble telescope has allowed man to see a tiny portion of the created order. 
and man has inadequately given names to designated planets and solar systems. He did the best he could. But whatever tiny little man can come up with, whatever the man who is a speck of dust on a gnat's eyelash can come up with, can't come close to the infinite creator God. So take a look at this video and just get a sense of how small the planet is. It's like a little island in the universe. Take a look.
see a little mountain at the beginning of that? Did you see how quickly it passed out of your entire sight? Let me read to you Matthew 17 about the Mount of Transfiguration and keep in your mind how small that mountain is and how small a portion of God's glory he showed them. Six days after Jesus took him with Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led him up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Now, if you wish, I can make tabernacles here. I can make one for you. I can make one for Moses. I can make one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed him. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. Jesus stepped out of heaven onto this little minuscule planet that he created. He became a man. He became that speck of dust on a gnat's eyelash. He went on to this tiny little mountain and he opened up a glimpse of a glimpse of a glimpse of a glimpse of his glory. Do you get how small of a piece he showed? It was so small. It was so small compared to the great sum of his glory. And then the glory cloud overshadowed them. And this small portion of God's voice sounded. And what happened to these men and their three-pound brains? Exactly. They fell flat on their faces and were terrified. God showed these men a tiny speck of his glory. And those men knew right away they were in danger. That's the word terrified. That's what it means. And they fell flat on their faces, terrified. And Peter, and those, that great idea he had about all those tab- tabernacles, I don't think he ever talked about those tabernacles ever again. <laughs> Forget it. I didn't mean. <laughs> time after time, when humans got a glimpse of God's glory, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they fell flat on their faces. John fell as if he were a dead man. Isaiah was undone. It was a violent undoing of himself. That's what the word means. He was collapsing. These souls saw a vision of what God was like in his glory, and they buried their faces in the dirt, the dirt from whence they came. God blasted Job with his glory from the storm until Job fell apart. I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. We worship A tender father, yes, we do, but we also, he is a consuming fire. In Exodus 33, Moses asked God to describe himself. Because Moses, you know, he wanted to know who was going to go with him on this trip to the journey, you know, to the promised land. And then Moses went a little further and he said, I pray, show me your glory. What was Moses asking? He was asking if he could step beyond the bounds of human understanding and know a God No God in the ways that are unknowable. God mercifully held back because he knew if he fully exposed Moses to his full glory, Moses and his three-pound brain would explode into a million pieces. His soul would not be able to absorb it. His body would not be able to tolerate it. To see God in all his glory would kill him. See, we forget how powerful and truly awesome our almighty God is because we live under such grace. 
We can praise and thank God for his restraining hand. Ladies, maybe we just um, don't think that much about God's glory. And that's what I want to challenge you with today. There may be no hidden horrible motive behind that, but maybe we just don't think about it because our hearts are not fixed on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And you can tell that by the choices that you make in the big things in life and also in the tiny little day-to-day things. Life matters. Choices matter. What you think about matters. And all those choices we make, the things we think about, that's going to end up at the Bema. And they are either going to burn up in the wood, hay, and stubble, all those shallow choices you make, or our lives will come forth as gold and you're going to hear, well done. Now, we're going to just ask two questions right now. And the answer to both of those questions is the same. <laughs> how can the glory of God shine out of us? And how can we see the glory of God around us? So when I think of the glory of God shining out of someone, I, I immediately go to Abraham, right? Walking up that mountain in that magnificent display of trust in God, right? Genesis 22, God told Abraham, take your son, take your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on the mountain, which I'm going to tell you. And so Abraham rose in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, took his son, and off he went. Abraham didn't hesitate one second. He believed God's promise that God would make a great nation out of him, and ultimately all the families of the earth would be blessed because of Abraham. So this 100-year-old guy is taking his son, and he's walking up the mountain, believing and obeying God. That's the glory of God shining out of you. Abraham had a very special relationship with God. He was continually calling on the name of the Lord. He was walking very closely to him. And even though he demonstrated great faith in his life, Abraham had more than once lied about Sarah, who was his wife, and called her his sister to protect himself. See, when he was lying, he wasn't trusting God. He wasn't believing God. He was trying to fix his own problems. I don't know, women, do you have ever tried to solve your own problem? We specialize in it. Anyway, Abraham had times when he had trusted the Lord in mighty ways, and then he had times when he failed. That sounds just like you and me. How often we try to solve our own problems, our own way. We fail to pray to God. We fail to believe him. We fail to wait. That's a hard one. And we fail to hope. And that's the reason why God compares us to sheep. When he does, it's not a compliment. Dr. MacArthur calls them the dirty, dumb, and dangerous sheep. That's the best way to put it. They're dirty. They're the dumbest animals in the world. When I first saw a sheep up close, I was stunned that their eyes twitch. (laughs) They were running back and forth trying to find this opening, the opening that they ran back and forth like 40 times. (laughs) And and my my British friend, raised in a castle, I'm sure, (laughs) she was telling me the story of she and her friend were trying to get the, the sheep because a storm was coming, right? So they're chasing these sheep all over the place. I mean, they're up and they're down. They're they got the barn is open. It's nicely lit. It's, come on, it's inviting. They go right up to the door and they go, whoop, back down the ravine. And so the girls are running all over. The dog gave up. <laughs> they're dumb. <laughs> and they're dangerous out of fear. Sheep are prone to wander, so if a sheep gets away and gets up on a craggy rock, the shepherd actually has to wait until the sheep is almost dead before they move in, before he moves in to get it. Because otherwise, out of fear, he'll attack the shepherd and rip him to shreds and kill him just because he's trying to save his life. 
So you see, it's not a compliment, dirty, dumb, and dangerous. It's meant to humble us and to put us in our proper place. But when we see ourselves as those dirty, dumb, dangerous sheep, we can begin to see how foolish it is to try to fix our own problems. I mean, so we get to our questions. How can the glory of God shine out of us? And how can we see the glory of God around us? First point, you pray with submission. Most Christians go through life praying very little. Oh, you pray in the car, you pray in the shower, you pray while you're washing dishes. That's all good because that's how you worship in the middle of the muddle. But many Christians muddle through life with very little separate time for prayer. And when you fail to pray, you're taking things into your own hands and implementing your own ideas. Have you ever met a woman without an idea? Never! (laughs) Now, Hannah is a great example of praying with submission. Hannah was barren at a time in history when it was horrible stigma. And we find the story in 1 Samuel 1. Elkanah, that's how you say his name, uh, that's the, the husband, had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, polygamy was acceptable in the culture, but let's be honest. You can't have two women in a kitchen at the same time. And now you got two problems. you got two wives, and you got one with children, and you got one without. And to make matters worse, Elkanah showed favoritism towards Hannah because he would give Hannah a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord closed her womb. And Hannah's rival would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. I think in modern terms that would be called a bully. She was a vicious woman. And it happened year after year after year after year. And Hannah wept and would not eat, right? This is a horrible situation. So what did Hannah do? She took her distress. She took her discouragement. She took her anger. She took all those raw, ungodly emotions to God in prayer. And she told him everything. And that's the perfect picture of what biblical lament looks like. This is honest, open praying. This is lament. Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. It helps us process the pain. But everything, bring everything to God. Otherwise, prayerlessness will strike, and that is deadly. And after a season of prayerlessness, there's a silence that happens. And that silence turns into bitterness, and it turns into anger, and then that can dominate your life. Being honest with God cracks open the door back to God. And Hannah really poured out everything to God in prayer. I mean, this was a real lament. So much so that the priest thought she was drunk, right? And she said, no, I'm not not drunk. I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I've poured out my soul before the Lord with great concern and provocation. And then at the end of this praying time, she went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Look at that. God did something miraculous in the very act of praying. She got up from her prayer time and her countenance had changed and that reflected the change in her heart. She was no longer sad, but nothing had changed in her circumstances, ladies. She was still barren. Penina was still popping out those babies and she was still vicious. But Hannah's heart was fully satisfied with God. The fight was over, the battle won, and she burst forth in prayer, and that's recorded in 1 Samuel 2. My soul exalts in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Even though her hands were empty, 
Be honest and lament. If you turn your face to God, no matter how you're feeling, now you don't want to stay wallowing in the muck and the mire of your emotions. Now, that's not what this is about. That's not what lament is about. But this is a way through lament that leads you into God's heart where you ask him for help. Then you choose to trust him. And then in the dark place, he leads you to worship. It's a wonderful progression, all done through lament, honest, open praying to God. Hannah couldn't fix her problems. We can't fix our problems either. And it's so merciful of God to show us when we are insisting on getting our own way. Because sometimes we don't see it. And we got blind spots. We can't see we're doing it. We can't see we're bossing everybody around. (laughs) And he will show us that in the very act of praying. That's a mercy of God. So you've got to develop a worship-based prayer life. And I think of the young moms who've got, you know, all these little young kids all around them, and they don't have any time. But this is what I figured out. You've got to take a shower, right? Your people want you clean. So what you do, <laughs> you take a sentence of the Bible in with you. You don't take your Bible. It's going to get wet. Right? <laughs> so you take, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. So you take that in there, and you pray. So 15 minutes. So I did some math. 15 minutes in the shower. 15 times 7 is 105 minutes. So that's over an hour and a half of praying a week. It's more than you're doing now, I bet. Six to seven hours of prayer a month. It's a lot of praying. So you can start to live your whole life in stunned amazement at God, but you have to start to build that. And even if it's a few minutes in the shower, and then you take that scripture all through your day, see? Praying with submission. Second point, believe with obedience. How can the glory of God shine out of us on a daily basis? You shine by believing God. Romans 4.20 says, Abraham did not waver in unbelief and grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. God said, go here with your son, and he went. That was it. Simple as that. Dr. MacArthur says, believing God affirms his existence and character and thus gives him glory. So you bring glory to God when you believe and trust him for how he's going to work things out. And that's the hard part, ladies. That's what Abraham did. He didn't know how God was going to work all of that out, but he believed him. And we know, see, in our theology, we know that God is powerful, we know he's sovereign, and that he cares for us, and we shouldn't be afraid of anything. But our fear doesn't come from not trusting that God will take care of the situation. Get this, in case you dozed off. Our fear comes from how God will take care of the situation. We fear it won't go the way we want, right? That's what we really fear. And that makes our eyes twitch like the sheep. (laughs) We must trust him for the outcome he desires, like Abraham did. We try to figure out how to do things all the time. We come up with useless explanations of what God is doing, don't we? (laughs) And we really don't know anything. Remember the video? How small are you? A speck of dust on a gnat's eyelash. I don't know anything, and you don't know anything. (laughs) Don't try to fix your own problems. We shine when we believe God and obey his word, no matter what is happening, no matter how scary, no matter how desperate or sorrowful. You believe him in the dark. You obey him when you don't understand. That brings him glory, and it gets your motives in the right place, and that's going to be at the Bema. You pray with submission. You believe with obedience and you wait with hope. Have you ever prayed through a situation and actually waited to see how God would work things out? 
or you run in to try to fix things. I mean, even for young people, even waiting for someone to text you or call you, I mean, that can be very intense. Everything is intense as a young person, right? <laughs> Everything is like a big drama. As you get older, you can't even remember that you text someone and that you're waiting. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I didn't text you. I forgot I texted you. <laughs> oh, the joys of getting old. <laughs> Habakkuk waited with hope. God had let Habakkuk know that as an act of judgment, God was going to send the Chaldeans to invade his chosen yet disobedient people. So listen to how Habakkuk felt after his encounter with the glory of God. Habakkuk 3. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones. And in my place, I trembled because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise to invade us. And look at how he waits. In the next verse, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Wow. To wait quietly, rejoicing in the Lord. I mean, to have that kind of joy, that's a supernatural response. It's a gracious gift from God. Habakkuk realized that God was not to be worshipped merely because of temporal blessings. This is not our home, but for God's own glory. God was so big to Habakkuk. God's glory meant everything to him. It's hard to wait. And in some situations, you have no choice but to wait because there's nothing you can do. A mother standing over a sick child knows what it means to be helpless. A friend of mine was in a terribly abusive marriage for 20 years. And it was abuse that was all wrapped up in legalism, which made it worse. And when their child was born... The husband would not allow that mother to go and check on that infant in the middle of the night. That makes me really mad. (laughs) And then on top of it said, you're not trusting God. And you know what? Maybe she wasn't. (laughs) But you know what? The way he treated his wife, that had no Jesus in him. Jesus was tender and compassionate and kind and loving, especially to women. And this new mother was not allowed to go into her infant in the night. That's helplessness, like very few of us know. Maybe you're waiting for a wayward child to come to the Lord. Maybe you've been waiting 20, 30, 40 years. That's helplessness. And there is a helplessness in waiting, exactly. (laughs) The key to a victorious life in crisis, dependence, and helplessness. Think of our Johnny Erickson Tata, who we sang that beautiful song. She'd been in that wheelchair for 53 years. Speaking of Herbima, come on. It's a good thing we've got eternity. This is going to take forever to get through Herbima. <laughs> but t- about 20 years ago, she was speaking here at Grace Church, and some of you were here, and you're going to remember this moment because you don't remember what she said. You remember her joyful spirit. You remember her happy heart, right? And you remember when she had to cough, she couldn't do it alone. Her assistant had to get up from that seat and come up here and push in her stomach so she could cough. You got a problem? Whenever I'm having a problem, I think, wait a minute. I'm walking around here. That's helplessness. That's a picture of helplessness. And it's uncomfortable to feel helpless. We feel helpless when we have to wait. We don't like it. It's uncomfortable to wait. Why? Because you come face to face with your unbelief. You come face to face with your, all your ungodly emotions that you know aren't right. And then you feel like a hypocrite. And God is doing amazing things while we're waiting. 
He's exposing us to us. What a mercy. God is not on our timetable, have you noticed? (laughs) And that can be very disturbing to us. He allows pain and suffering. He does things we don't understand all the time. Remember the video? Could you put the universe together? No. In the waiting, you come face to face with your strong desire to do something. You want to do something, anything but wait. (laughs) And maybe you're just too weary and beaten down by life, by trials to even pray. Trials can beat you to a pulp. It can take years to recover from a traumatic thing that has happened to you in this fallen world. It's a beautiful world, but it's broken. You don't have to be a combat vet to have PTSD. In World War I, they used to call it shell shock. Now, not that I was around during War I. I just want to make that clear. I'm old, but not that old. (laughs) But you know what? It's a real thing. The Medical Association actually identifies 31 million people in the U.S. who have suffered from a traumatic event that have PTSD. So if you're recovering from a trauma, you may not have the energy to pray. And you feel like hope doesn't mean much to you. And, you know, people talk about rejoicing the hope of the glory of God, the hope of salvation, the hope of... And theologically, you know all this is right, right? Maybe you've lost a husband. You know, maybe you've lost a child. We talked about the recent school shooting. I mean, it doesn't get worse than that. There are a million things that can beat us up in this life. And you're exhausted, you're discouraged, you're scared. And someone comes along and tries to encourage you, talking about hope, and you just go, I can't see hope. I can't touch hope. And now you're hopeless. That's a really hard place to be. And it's real for a lot of women. When you're in this kind of an emotional state in the midst of a trial, recovering from something, Before you can truly wait with hope, you have to grieve. God gives us the ability to cry. That is a blessing. Psalm 138.6 is one of my favorite in all of Scripture, talking of the Lord Jesus. Though he is exalted, he regards the lowly. When you look at the qualities Jesus put on display while he walked the earth that he created, humility, sacrifice, mercy, tenderness, especially when dealing with women of the day, meekness. This is someone you can trust when they're in an exalted state. For though he is exalted, he regards the lowly. He's not going to turn on you. He's not going to forget about you and start thinking about himself. That's not who he is. That's not what he put on display when he was here. There is someone who hears your prayers. He hears your cries. He keeps your tears in a bottle, and he can say, I know about everything. He knows. He felt every despair you will ever feel, and he felt it deeper. So when you're being mistreated or abused, he can say to you, I know. When you've been forgotten or you're all alone and you're lonely, he can say, I know. When you're sick and when you're dying and afraid, he can say to you, or where you're standing over that sick child and you can do nothing, nothing, nothing. You're helpless. And he can say to you, I know. He's right there with you. You may not even be able to utter a prayer from your lips, but he knows, he sees, he cares, he loves. In the waiting, in the suffering, in the recovery, just remember who he is. Just remember how much he loves you. And remember, this is not our home. Oh, we're just a passing through. Life is a breath. It is a sigh.
So while you have breath, fix your eyes upon him, fix your heart upon him. And then over time, Jesus will become more real to you. And the hope of glory will become more real to you. And then you can wait quietly like a backache. But it may take a little bit of work. Pray with submission, believe with obedience, wait with hope, be enraptured by his glory through worship. You have to gaze upon his glory, who and what he is. And this goes beyond, beyond intellectual study of the Bible. That's important. But this is being enraptured goes way beyond the intellect. This goes way beyond collecting head knowledge. You don't get to the heart of God through intellectual prowess. You don't get there that way. It's the practice of long and loving meditation upon the majesty and splendor of God through his word. Now look, you don't have to read 14 chapters a day. Maybe it's one sentence a day. You know, I took a whole year just going through the book of John, and I did it one sentence at a time. I just meditated on it. I read it. I worshiped through the sentence. I journaled maybe about it. I I just thought about the one sentence every day. And then the next day, I went to the second sentence. And that's what I did for like a whole year. It was slow. It's quiet. It takes time and consistency. And it goes against everything in our world. Everything. We are here walking on this earth for but a short season. It's so short. Even if you've been around for a long time, it's short. It all goes by so fast. When we get to heaven, our faith will be sight and everything will be different. But now is the only time we can walk so closely to him in this special walking by faith way. If Jesus can become more real to you than the chair you're sitting on, you will be blessed all the days of your life in stunning ways. Then you can enjoy him and see his hand everywhere and in everything. His glory is bursting all around you. But if you do not have this prayer life in place, you'll miss it. I don't want, to wait. I don't want you to wait till you're 80 to figure this out. I don't want you to wait till you're 60 or 40 or 20. I want you to get it now. Society is becoming more and more secular and intolerable of the Bible and Christians, and it will become harder and harder to live a God-honoring life. Sin is normal now. And everyone who is living a holy, righteous life, we are weird and wrong. And everybody hates us. Moms, the greatest gift you can give your children is that they see the glory of God shine out of you through your humble, repentant heart, through your consistent reading of the Bible. Just let them see you reading it. Let them hear you pray. Have your quiet times in front of them until they grow up, and then you really are going to have to learn to pray. But let them see you be stunned by the glory of God everywhere. And number five, our our little points, is abide in him. 1 John 2, 28, we talked about it earlier. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. Abiding means, what is, you know, it means kind of, abiding kind of wraps up everything we've talked about. It's, it's all about being so close to the Lord, so intimate that you are wrapped up in this cocoon, safely in Christ. You're mindful. I mean, it's literally like a cocoon, just like this. I know. And you see everything. You see everything through the prism of his word. You see everything through his eyes, everything, everywhere you go. You just, I mean, I don't, you just know he's there. It's just a deep, deep sense of, of seeing everything 
through the prison of his eyes, through his word. And it's about being absolutely dependent upon Jesus. Every moment you have breath, every second you live. Now, John chapter 6 tells us much about abiding. John chapter 15 does as well as as 1 John does. But the progression of events in chapter 6 starts with the miracle Jesus performs when he feeds the 5,000. Right? You know the miracle, and it's actually about 15,000, 20,000 if you add in the women and the children. It's a lot of people with five loaves and two fish. Okay? It's an incredible miracle. And then Jesus, they leave that scene, and they're on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples, and this miracle was just for the disciples, and he walks on the water, right? And that's the next progression. And then they all arrive in Capernaum, and Jesus then gives them the sermon on the bread of life. So listen, ladies, the same people who were listening to this sermon on the bread of life were the same people who had just seen him feed all those people from bread that never grew and fish that never swam. And Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 27, this is a very fun progression. He said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Eternal life is a gift, right? You can't work for it. You receive it by believing in Jesus, right? So Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes. And so the people immediately ask him, well, what should we do? (laughs) So that we may work the works of God. And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And of course, the one who he sent is standing right in front of them. (laughs) They just were so dense. And they replied, okay, all right, we got that. Okay, so what do you do as a sign so that we can see and believe? Finite creatures trapped in time. I want to see so I can believe. I want to do something to be saved. Moses gave our father's manna in the wilderness. What are you going to do? He just fed 20,000 people. But he gave it to us for 40 years. (laughs) The rabbis taught the people of Israel that when the Messiah came, he would do more spectacular things than Moses. So the question makes sense in context. Moses gave the people bread every day in the wilderness for 40 years, called it the bread from heaven. So they wanted to know what Jesus was going to do to top Moses. And Jesus said, Moses did not give you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven and gives life to the world. And he goes on to say, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. How many times is he saying it? He's saying it over and over and over again. They're like, "Uh, okay. (laughs) Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven that one may eat it and not die. Get it? I am the living bread, just in case you didn't get it, I'm going to say it again, that came down out of heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, you will live forever. The physical, the physical food we have in this world is perishable. It can spoil. Food, by definition, needs to be absorbed and needs to be replenished. You have to keep eating to live. Also, what you eat becomes a part of you through your digestive system, so it's very important what you eat. If you're an athlete training for that big race, you want to feed your body good, healthy food so your body operates at the highest performance level. 
If you feed your body junk food, you're not going to feel, you're, gonna, you're not going to feel good, you're going to feel horrible, and you're not going to perform very well. And Paul likens our Christian life to that of an athlete's running the race to win. So, to be in top shape, you have to consume wonderfully healthy food. Jesus is talking about supernatural food. If you want to live the Christian life in all its fullness and walk intimately every moment with Jesus, you have to consume the very best food, and that is the perfect, flawless word of God, the bread of life. The food that Jesus was offering, it never spoiled, and it always satisfies. He is the bread of heaven. Only Jesus can satiate real spiritual, emotional, soul hunger of any kind. He says, if you partake of me, you can have eternal life, and you can have an intimate relationship with me while you walk on this earth, and it's going to fully and finally satisfy you. Fully and finally. If you're going to do something of eternal value, like we talked about in the first session, if you want to make a difference in people's lives for eternity, if you want to bear real spiritual fruit that's going to show up as gold at the Bema, Jesus says, apart from me, you can't do any of that on your own. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. And how do you bear much fruit? You abide. And Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And how do you abide? You abide in Jesus through his word. When you are interacting with the word of God, you consume the word to get it into your soul. You listen to it, you read it, you memorize it, you meditate on it, you pray through it, and then this supernatural thing happens. The Holy Spirit starts to work in your spirit and changes you into the very image of Christ and drives you deep into the heart of God. And what on earth does that mean, drive you deep into the heart of God? It sounds so good, doesn't it? It's very poetic. Well, your mind is filled with thoughts of him and every word, every minute, you really don't want to take a step without thinking that he's right there with you, wrapped up in the cocoon. <laughs> he's moving in your thoughts and he's, he's in your every breath. Even when you sin, you know immediately your offense. He's right there with the gift of repentance. You don't get very far in a sin because the word stops you. You love him so much. You want to stay so close to him. And you don't want to make a move without him. Now, we have another video from Johnny she made for us. And I want you to pay close attention to what she says about abiding. Hi, this is Johnny Erickson Tata with a special greeting to all the ladies gathered for Logan Carr's presentation today, Saturday on We Stand Amazed, A Glimpse Into the Heavenlies. And of course, Logan is gonna be speaking about the importance of abiding in Christ. And you know, with uh, 53 years of total paralysis, quadriplegia, two battles with stage three cancer, oh my goodness, chronic pain, I wake up every, up every day in the morning needing Jesus desperately. I need to abide in the Lord God. And one of my favorite portions of scripture is John chapter six, where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Oh, girls, that's how desperately I need the Lord Jesus. Every morning I wake up facing a hard life. So it makes me want to 
eat the flesh of the Lord Jesus and drink his blood. Lord Jesus, I want to ingest you. I want to be so connected with you as a vine is to a branch. I, I just want to take everything from you that I possibly can. I don't want to stray one inch from your side. To abide in Christ means to abide in his joy and his love and his grace and his power. So girls, it's my prayer that by the end of the day and Logan's presentations, you too will enjoy the grace and the power that comes from abiding in Jesus. We all should stand amazed at what's happening in the heavenlies every day when the Lord Jesus pours out his strength upon us who are weak. God bless you and have a great day. So the verse that Johnny shared is shocking, isn't it? When I heard her, that that's the verse she chose, I went, that's shocking. <laughs> Eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, we're we back at John, you know, Patton with the cannibals. <laughs> it was shocking then and it's shocking today. I mean, everything that Jesus said was shocking. Everything he did was shocking. I am the bread of life. Nothing on this planet is designed to fully satisfy you. Nothing but Jesus can fully and finally satisfy you. But you have to feast on the bread of life. So through the living word, ingest him, like she said. Are you feasting on Jesus? You can do that by praying with submission, believing with obedience, wait with hope, be enraptured by his glory, abide in him, and then... When you get to the Bema, you're going to hear, well done. Who 
Oh 